The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about troubles in Florida's Indian River Lagoon, the most biologically diverse estuary in North America. And with me is Jim Egan, Executive Director of the Marine Resources Council. Jim has a master's degree in environmental chemistry. Hello, Jim. Hey, Rob. How goes it? Very good. And also with me is George Jones, the Indian River Lagoon Riverkeeper. Hello, George. Hey, Jim. Rob, how you doing? Very good. Uh, George, we're going to start with... Uh, the river keeper here, and um, I understand you come from a bit of experience with state government uh, before becoming the uh, river keeper. Uh, yeah, I worked uh, fortunately uh, in 30, for 34 years with the DEP and the state parks department. I uh, started out as a ranger and worked my way up through the ranks, mostly on the southeast coast of Florida and a little bit on the southwest, but uh, predominantly. Uh, Worked the Keys, worked Miami. I've worked up in the uh, the area that I'm in now, so covered quite a bit of territory and retired and couldn't stay still. So wound up uh, working for the environment as the Indian River Lagoon keeper. So, well, most people expect a river keeper to have to really know the science, but to be effective, you really have to know how government works and how policies are advanced. And so you bring the best of both those worlds, I'd imagine. Well, I'm fortunate in that I have great people like Jim Egan and a lot of folks around me, and also when I was the regional director for the state parks, uh, I was fortunate enough to have a great team of biologists, and I learned that you need to know what you don't know and find the people that do know it and then listen to them and try to react right. and get things done. So uh, I'm fortunate in that regard, and I'm better at trying to put people together, and like you said, I do understand how the government process works. And, I think it uh, it takes all of us doing what we do best to try to get things accomplished, and that's the niche that I fit the best, I think. Well, you do it very well. People um, who live in the uh, Indian River Lagoon and also visitors, they care deeply about it, and they want to do something about it, and you're the kind of keystone that connects those collaborative efforts in many ways uh, because you're out there on the water. Uh, so tell us a bit about this precious uh, estuary that's, just to the east of Orlando. Well, it's a it's a wonderful piece of paradise, as you said earlier. It's, it's unlike any other estuary uh, in the United States and in, uh, probably in the world, as far as its, its diversity and its its uh, quality of, of resource uh, recreation, as well as uh, resource protection. Uh, 
Uh, it's a great uh, breeding ground for fish. Uh, uh, we've got people that tell us that uh, some of the uh, juvenile species uh, that start their life here are, uh, are commercial catch and harvest and recreational fishing clear up to the Carolinas. So uh, our, our estuary provides a tremendous uh, service, uh, and that's one of the things I, I try to emphasize is that it's a wonderful place to recreate and play, but it's also a very uh, powerful economic factor and driver in, in our whole community. So it's uh, it's a very, very special, beautiful place, and I'm very fortunate to be able to get out on it and, and enjoy it and, and hopefully try to educate people what they can do to protect it. So. so you're finding that it's a nursery for animals that people then enjoy far from that region, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, we've, uh, Dr. Grant Gilmore's the one that actually did some of the premier work as far as establishing it as the most diverse estuary, and some of that work was done right at the mouth of St. Lucie Inlet. And uh, when you look at the numbers uh, that, that he collected during his time when he was actually doing that, and some of those species and how far flung uh, they, they go from their juvenile state, uh, our, our impacts are felt all the way up the eastern seaboard. Yes. So what kinds of changes do you see happening as you go out on the lagoon? Well, you know, we're in our wet season. It's been awful dry, and, of course, uh, that predicates us getting lots of uh, dirty water into the lagoon from stormwater runoff and those kinds of things. So I see those changes uh, just seasonally based on dry season and wet season. Uh, what's in, exciting now, the good changes, uh, we're starting our fall moment run, the bait's starting to move, and the Sport fish and game fish are starting to be very active. The fishermen are out having a great time, and you can see the abundance of the lagoon uh, uh, in its in its uh, full blown glory, so to speak, with uh, with the uh, abundance of bait fish that are moving. Uh, I do see a lot of a uh, lot of changes, though. Uh, we're getting you know more and more population density. Uh, I know people talk that Florida started to slow down because of the economy, but uh, our areas are still uh, we're pretty busy and a lot of tourism and a lot of those types of things, which is good. But uh, we're, we're seeing the impacts on the lagoon, and as, as we do that, we have to learn how to, uh, how to protect it and how to live within the, uh, our abilities to use it and still keep it viable. So when you were working for the state, there was a very active national estuary program going on um, in the lagoon, and I understand that led to a number of good measures to... Uh, reduce some of the outfall and some of the other detrimental effects. Um, are they managing to, are you saying they can't keep up with the increasing population with uh, increasing uh, protective measures or? Well, uh, what, I, what I see is, is that we need to be ever vigilant. I mean, we've, we've made progress in some areas. Some counties uh, uh, have done wonderful things with their storm water and made some progress. Some counties have been a little, little slower behind. It, the concerted effort is there. There's a lot of folks that are concerned, uh, but we still we still have areas that we really need to focus in on and, and to try to improve our, our uh, management practices and and uh, look at how we can better uh, keep the lagoon healthy for the long haul. Uh, we're we're seeing the impacts of, uh, of stormwater runoff, as I said, and what's going on with the Lake Okeechobee situation into the St. Lucie uh, South Fork and North Fork, as well as the basin drainages. Those things are, are problems that have been created in the past that we now have to try to, to, to rectify. And so it didn't happen overnight, and it's going to take us a while to, to correct some of that, but we need to be ever vigilant and keep working on them. 
uh, I think that it could be a lot worse because we did get a head start. We have been trying to, to be proactive and do some things. And uh, with Jim's activities and many people like him, we're still uh, we're still moving forward. And the estuarian programs were a big uh, big help to that. Also, the uh, the uh, a lot of the different state parks that are on the borders of that, a lot of the county facilities, a lot of the public lands that have been purchased have added buffers. Uh, the coastal and aquatic uh, managed areas for the state have provided buffer areas for the uh, for the lagoon. So. There's a lot of positives that have been happening, and we just need to, to build upon those positives. Yes, it's really a remarkable area for the amount of public spaces, you know, beautiful parks right along the water and walkways all over the place. Um, it, it seems to be a, a very welcoming uh, ecosystem. And, and it is, and there's a lot of public access, which is wonderful, and, and it People appreciate what they can touch and feel. We used to say in the park service, we like to get people in the parks because then they get some of it on them, and then it stays with them. And, <laughs> and, that's, the way I, and that's the way I feel about, about being out on the lagoon or being close to the lagoon or, or along the shorelines. People develop that sense of ownership, and, and then they, they want to take care of it more. If it's more remote to them and if it's something they don't understand, then, then it's not quite as personal when they start seeing things happen into the lagoon. They don't... You know, to them, it's not so much about the economic impacts or whatever. It's about their ability to go out with their kids and their families and enjoy that resource and have a good time there. Well, the Ocean River Institute has been advocating for, you know, better um, lawn ordinances on the way they treat the lawn, and we've actually had signs up about, you know, help the Indian River Lagoon up in Boston, Massachusetts at uh, the Earth Festival on the Esplanade. And people come from way across the, the sidewalk or more, you know, because they see the word Indian River Lagoon, and they just love this place, and they want to know why are we talking about it up here in Boston. And uh, it, it clearly is a national treasure. Well, we're, we're very fortunate to have folks like you that are, that are out there uh, keeping people educated that, that are not in the immediate area. And, and like I said, folks come to visit from... Uh, one of the interesting parts with my background in state parks is we learned very quickly that we have a lot of international and national visitors, but we have a, an extremely large amount of visitors that are from the United States coming to Florida on a regular basis to enjoy our resources. And, and it's, uh, like I said, it's a special place. They're, they come here because it's not available to them anywhere else but in Florida. We're, we're one of the few uh, subtropical areas where people could come and not have to spend a fortune going to the islands or going down to uh, the Caribbean, and, and it's, you get that same experience in a lot of areas. And the lagoon is, is just, uh, as we said, it's such a diverse place with a lot of public access, and so it's quite the draw, and uh, we want to keep it that way. Yes. If listeners want to know more about what the Ocean River Institute is doing in the, with and for the Indian River Lagoon, Go to our website at uh, www.oceanriver.org, and we have a uh, petition that we're, we're writing letters to the commissioners to uh, better regulate the, um, the washout from lawns and so forth of nutrients. And the remarkable thing was that we got all these letters from Canadians, and I was thinking, why are all these Canadians <laughs> writing about Indian River Lagoon? And, George, this is what I learned, you know, when I brought the letters down, was that uh, it is an international treasure, that people are coming from not just um, New England or Chicago or something, but they're coming from all over. And um, where can people learn more about your work? 
Is there a website well, uh, you can go to? Yeah, we have a website. You can go to IndianRiverKeeper.org, and uh, from that, there's uh, quite a few links that'll take you to other information about what's going on in the lagoon. I, as I said, one of my uh, things that I really try to do is make sure that uh, everyone understands it takes a lot of folks to make things happen, and so we try to link to all the uh, different uh, connections that can keep people informed about what they can do for the lagoon. Uh, you'll also see some articles in there about numeric nutrient criteria and the fertilizer ordinances and those types of things that the Riverkeeper actively pursues. We work with the counties and, and the, the different commissions as well as with the state. Uh, I made several trips to the legislature last year uh, trying to uh, help entice uh, folks not to lowering standards as far as water quality and those types of things. And it's, we have to be ever vigilant. Because there are folks uh, on the other side of the fence that would rather not spend the money to clean it, clean up water or to clean up their mess before it goes into the water and, uh, and take more profit. So we, we have to be careful uh, and vigilant that the rules stay in place and that everybody uh, has to abide by them to keep our waters clean. Tell us a little more about your trip to Tallahassee and what would be obvious, you think was obvious, so you'd have to explain to, to people and what's this well, particular problem there. Yeah, it's it's interesting, but uh, the resources, the Indian River Lagoon doesn't have a, a, a paid lobbyist other than a, than a few of us that uh, that do a lot of this uh, for nonprofit work. But uh, the fertilizer industry and a lot of other industries that that have an impact on the lagoon have very strong lobbyists, and they they lobby the elected officials, and in some cases they lobby them for their best interest and not necessarily the best interest of the lagoon. So some of those of us, as the Indian Riverkeeper, as well as other organizations that are nonprofits, uh, Sierra Club, Waterfowlers, it's a broad spectrum of folks that they have an interest in maintaining the health of the lagoon. We go up and, and we try to, to pre- present the, the counter-argument of why it's important to, uh, to protect the lagoon. So I have meetings with uh, state senators and state elected officials and legislators, their staffs. Uh, go to Washington uh, a couple times a year and try to make sure we get our elected officials more uh, uh, educated on, on why we feel our issues are as important as, uh, say, some of the other industries that are pushing for lower standards. And uh, we, we have to make sure we present a balanced argument so that they understand that there's many, many people out here that, uh, that respect uh, the lagoon and that it is a viable economic uh, driver for the state of Florida. Well, George, that's fantastic. The legislators need the problems brought to them and explained concretely. I learned about the problem when visiting Senator Bill Nelson in Washington, D.C., and he pulled out a jar that was the greenest thing I've ever seen. It looked like worse St. Patrick's beer in Boston than than that. And uh, he had got from the St. Lucia River saying, look at this green slime that's coming into the Gulf of, you know, into the uh, Indian River Lagoon and how we must do something about this. So we're going to talk more about what's being done after this break. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. All together now, all together now. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We've been talking with George Jones, the Indian River Lagoon Riverkeeper, and we're talking about a very special area on the Atlantic side of Florida at about uh, the level of Orlando and reaching south to Palm Beach County. And also with me is Jim Egan, who's the executive director of Marine of the Marine Resources Council. Uh, he's got a master's degree in environmental chemistry, and he has been, for me, a source of the scientific information of what is going on with the Indian River Lagoon. Hi, Jim. Hey, how you doing, Rob? Good. Um, so what are you seeing? Uh, we, we heard, you know, from the Riverkeeper, and um, perhaps you can uh, take us a little deeper into the science of the ecology of the system of the Indian River Lagoon. Well, to give just a little bit of background, the Indian River uh, was always referred to as a river, even though it, it's not. It's a very narrow lake that's attached to the ocean. So any pollution that goes into it, we're pretty much stuck with. So some areas of the lagoon take as long as a year to have its water circulated out to the ocean and back again. The, uh, historically, there was not a lot of drainage area into the lagoon, so the bottoms were white sand and they were filled with seagrass. There was not a lot of algae. There was not a lot of uh, freshwater runoff into the system. And uh, that was the, one of the uh, major reasons why it created such a valuable biodiverse community. When the farming first moved into the area, they created a lot of canals to drain the uh, uh, wetlands. And then as homes were built along these canals, we created a lot of impervious surface that's now causing the uh, runoff of freshwater and of uh, nutrients from yards I- into a water body that is uh, used to not having them. And so we've mm. been slowly shifting the lagoon from a very clear water, very white sandy bottom to a black mucky bottom 
with a lot more algae and some of them even harmful algaes that can uh, cause even human uh, respiratory problems. Yes, and then uh, it's a very shallow area, as you were saying, and for those that don't live in Florida, um, your rainy se- you have a rainy season, which it happens to be in the summertime when the waters are warmest, and yep. so that's when you get your most runoff, so it's not like uh, other places where there might be regular rains around the year, you tend to get it all bad at once, right? Yes. Dry, dry winters and uh, very wet summers, and the long, uh, the long hot summer with all that sunlight should be an excellent time for seagrasses to grow. But when you add the uh, the un, uh, unexpected, the the nutrients during the rain seasons that are not naturally part of the system that are coming from uh, lawn fertilizers or from septic tanks, suddenly you create a new competitor. The algae uh, can utilize those, those nutrients, the nitrogen and phosphorus, in the water column and cloud the water. For instance, right mm-hmm. now uh, we have an algae bloom that's stretching uh, from Brevard uh, in through uh, Indian River County and is making the lagoon uh, so um, uh, dark-colored that the seagrasses are dying off uh, at an exceptional rate this year. We had been seeing through uh, a number of years of relative um, dry conditions a tremendous rebounding of seagrass, and, and almost all of our gains have been canceled out in a single season just because enough rainfall has brought in enough of the nutrients and the al- algae bloom is so extensive that no light is getting down to the seagrass. That's remarkable. This is a particularly bad year for the Indian River Lagoon. And, you know, we wouldn't think of that, that, you know, that just algae in the water could significantly, so significantly suppress the light reaching the seagrass that the grass would die as if you left a tarp over it or something. Seagrass is just like any other plant. Without sunlight, they'll die off. And uh, the system is complex. And if it's never naturally had a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus coming in, as soon as you start adding it, you create havoc. I like to describe it uh, kind of like if you thought about your fish tank. Fish tank is kept warm year-round, and you've got fish living in it. If you would overfeed your fish to the point where they couldn't consume all the, all the food, first thing that would happen is your fish die off, your tank starts to get green with algae, and the next thing you discover is you start to get sick. Because if you keep a warm body of water overfed uh, with nutrients, sooner or later some microbial thing is going to grow in there that's going to come back to haunt you. And that's the type of situation we're in here. Warm almost year-round, long, hot uh, period, and lots of food going in for anything that wants to grow there. It's, it's a, a potentially unhealthy situation. So there are a lot of animals that are charismatic that are tied to the seagrass. You know, I'm thinking turtles and, and so forth. Manatees and many, many yes. species of fish. So tell us about the turtles and manatees of Indian River Lagoon. How are they doing? Well, uh, the, our, our, our dolphin, manatee, and turtle populations, which are our, our largest, most charismatic uh, species, they've been suffering from a number of ailments that historically uh, they would not have suffered from. You know, the, uh, the turtles have the, uh, uh, these growths on their bodies as well as the dolphins. The, um, uh, 
the manatees are their their biggest they're 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 being subjected to a number of uh, illnesses as well. Their biggest danger is uh, right now is boat related uh, from boat strike. But overall, we know that these species, which had been um, had only a very limited number of diseases known to affect them, now actually has more than four to ten times as many diseases affecting them, and some of them are actually human diseases that we've, through the through, um, poorly sighted septic tanks, we've actually input into the lagoon um, pathogens that have become absorbed and have spread uh, viruses and other things to the marine mammals, and some of them are even cattle diseases. So there are, there are some human ailments that now affect our uh, manatees and dolphins, and uh, overall, when we stress the water quality, we tremendously stress them as well. So uh, a, a dolphin die-off is almost always associated with uh, a dramatic drop in water quality, and then uh, they become more uh, susceptible to disease. Uh, there might be a toxic algal bloom that might appear at the same time to kind of push things over the edge. But uh, clearly, their health is completely dependent upon how we interact with our waters. And if we keep those waters healthy, they're going to have a healthy, vibrant population. If we compromise the health of those waters, we might not see that that water quality has changed. We might notice it's turned green. We might see some fish wash up on the shore. That would be the extent of it. But the truth is, is we're, we're really um, seriously harming populations of uh, uh, very important uh, animals that critically need these areas. The sea turtles... Uh, grow up here in the Indian River Lagoon. We, we associate them with the ocean beaches because that's where they give birth, but it's, it's the juvenile years are all spent here in the Indian River Lagoon. The dolphin that we find here in the lagoon only live here in the lagoon. If we pollute the lagoon, we're polluting their entire uh, uh, life cycle from the time they're born to the time they die because this is their home. They know of no other place. Yes, and I understand there's a population of dolphins that live outside the lagoon, and they're not showing the same stresses and illnesses that the in, inside the lagoon dolphins are showing. No, you're absolutely right, because overall the ocean is so large that the, our in, impact on the ocean is much less. You take a shallow inland water body uh, with a tremendous amount of uh, runoff coming into it, and we can have huge effects on it. Uh, we, we dramatically change the salinity, the amount of oxygen in the water, the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus, the things that trigger the, the toxic algal blooms. So we have a tremendous influence. Uh, researchers down at Harbor Branch have also compared our population uh, with other big dolphin populations and other estuaries such as the Chesapeake Bay, and they also discover that, that our dolphins are unusually stressed. We have um, uh, uh, created... Uh, per capita, more impacts here in this water body than any of the estuaries along the entire Atlantic coast. And this is not the fault that, you know, the people living here are worse off than, are, are behaving worsely than people in the Chesapeake. It's that, as you were describing, that the Indian River Lagoon is basically a shallow petri dish that um, is extra warm and extra nutrient-rich, and so you're going to have incredible growths coming out of it. Yes, it's, it's incredibly sensitive. And, and uh, naturally, the filtering tools that we had, the wetlands that would filter out uh, nutrients and, and, and other pollutants coming into the system, uh, they have been impacted 
to a large extent. Historically, we had fewer of them connecting to the Indian River Lagoon than any other uh, estuary uh, along the Atlantic coast. And of them, we've had a, a disproportionate amount of destruction because people like to live near the water. And so the loss of those, um, the loss of those uh, wetlands and the, the, in order to drain land, uh, the creation of a lot of canals means that people who are miles from the lagoon are actually impacting the water quality of the lagoon without them even knowing it. Right, the cattle ranches are pretty far inland. Yes, yes. But once again, if you look at the network of canals that connect to the Indian River Lagoon, it almost looks like a city street grid. There's tremendous, tremendous penetration. And the speed at which pollution on the land can make it out to the lagoon has been increased by a thousandfold because of these canal systems. So it's very important that things not be washed into these canals because Absolutely. it gets streamlined into the lagoon. Absolutely. And, 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 the, and the, 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 the sad part is, is if you look at agricultural interests, uh, they have some very specific chemicals that they use that can be very problematic. But overall, they're very concerned about not overutilizing, for instance, fertilizers like nitrogen and phosphorus because it's just bad for their bottom line. They can't wait. Right. Cost money is... We as homeowners, we can easily throw a little extra fertilizer down and think nothing of it. And unfortunately, that little bit of fertilizer, when it's multiplied by so many of us, can have huge impact. It's been estimated that uh, the average homeowner who fertilizes will actually put down 10 times as much fertilizer for his uh, yard than an agricultural interest would be doing for the same size piece of ground. Well, this is a good point that we're going to come back to um, after the break, that um, uh, people, you know, people need to know what's the right amount. No one tells us, you know, how much to put down. We don't want to waste a Saturday morning fertilizing. We don't have to. But uh, we need information. And so we're going to learn more about um, how that has been advanced after this break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. 
This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're talking with Jim Egan, Executive Director of the Marine Resources Council, and George Jones, Indian River Lagoon Riverkeeper. Uh, George, Jim was just explaining to us the, uh, the need to have more knowledge about what we're putting on our lawns as homeowners uh, because um, it, it has a multiplying negative effect when we put unnecessary fertilizers onto our lawn. Um, and... And you were earlier mentioning uh, the issue of, of phosphorus. So the fertilizers are mostly nitrogen and phosphorus, I guess. Yeah, if you look on the fertilizer bag, there's three numbers on there, and, and two of them are one phosphorus and one's nitrogen. And, and in Florida, uh, we export more phosphorus than, I mean, we're, we're a phosphorus-rich state. I had a fellow tell me at a, at a county commission meeting once that tests lawns for a living that, uh, in 20 years, he's never tested a lawn, in, and I think this was St. Lucie County, that uh, needed phosphorus. Uh, and yet every bag of fertilizer you, you pretty much can buy in Florida up until recently has had the middle number, is the phosphorus number, has had phosphorus in it. Uh, there's no need for that, and the public doesn't understand a lot of times what's even in a bag of fertilizer. They go to a box store, you know, like a, a, a Lowe's or a Home Depot or whatever, and they, and they buy fertilizer for their yard, and, and they don't want to waste their money, but they don't understand the complexities. The fertilizer industry, to a large extent, is based outside of Florida. They don't want to have to repackage and, and or reformulate uh, and take phosphorus out. That's why there's been controversy over fertilizer ordinances or whatever. It's a strong lobby that doesn't want to have to, to remove fertilizers. And the public needs, needs to understand, but until... We get strong elected officials that pass some ordinances to where uh, we can we can regulate the amount of phosphorus and nitrogen that are in these pro- products. Uh, it will make it easier for the general public to do the right thing for their for their lawn and, and not waste their money. So I think it's terribly important that the public be involved with their elected officials in in how these ordinances come about. It's not that nobody wants to see a green yard. It's that, that there's a lot of this stuff that's not necessary to keep that. And it is extremely harmful to the environment that these folks came to Florida to enjoy and hopefully preserve. Yes. Uh, later in the show, we're going to have Nancy Beaver, a resident of Stewart, who went to her um, commissioner, uh, who is a one of those strong people, you said, who stood up for the right kind of uh, ordinance to address the fertilizer bill. So hang in. If you're listening... Stay tuned, because that's coming up in, a, um, in about 10 minutes or so. Um, George, um, well, well, let's go back to, to Jim. Um, what, what else should people, can people do to help, um, help the lagoon not uh, become a toxic stew or whatever? Well, the thing is, is that um, uh, just anything that you can do, 
to maximize the amount of water that's captured in your property and filtered down into the ground, become valuable groundwater. That's just so many gallons of water that's not rushing off your driveway out into the street and then impacting the uh, lagoon itself. So uh, having a swell, a gentle low area that water will collect and allow it to filter down, taking the downspout from your uh, gutters from your home and directing that into your grass as opposed to onto your driveway. Um, trying to uh, use as much native plants as possible. If you use native uh, uh, grasses and wildflowers, you do not need to uh, uh, water so much. You do not need to uh, fertilize. And so as a result, there's just less uh, contaminants going in. Uh, try not to broadcast things. If, if you have a specific insect problem, only spray the insecticide in that area. The products that, that, that you just spray all over the yard and broadcast all over the yard, these things called weed and feed, well, that's a nice name for it, but uh, the weed part is a pesticide that can be harmful to humans, can be harmful to animals such as your pets, your children, will also get into the water supply, get into the surface waters. The feed part is your nutrient, and it may not be formulated to be the best formula for your yard. So you do not want to just be broadcasting this stuff like it's candy. It's, it's a product that's meant for a specific application when there's a specific need, and you want to um, make sure that your application matches the need. Yes, and you want to respect the setbacks, right? Yes, yes. Having setbacks is huge. There's nothing like 100 feet of Mother Nature to remove pollutants that would otherwise get into the Indian River Lagoon. The, uh, no matter what kind of technology we come up with, uh, 100 feet of native vegetation is an extraordinarily valuable resource. It was found by a study by the Pew Foundation that um, uh, as you move closer and closer, you know, and, and reduce that uh, safety margin, the health of your water body dramatically declines. They also found that as we create more and more impervious surface, driveways, parking lots, uh, you know, patio decks, and we allow these to drain off into the uh, uh, streets or directly into the lagoon as opposed to filter into vegetated areas, that as we reach a number of about 25% coverage, it reduces the uh, ecological value of our local water body by over 80%. Typical urban development is 35% coverage of impervious surface. So if we do things like people typically do, we are uh, ultimately going to destroy uh, over 80% of the value of our local waters. And we've come a ways where there are now pervious things you can put down, so it feels like an impervious surface, but not, right? Yes, they have, they, have, they have concrete that's actually pervious. It actually has openings in it. Water can go down. There's the old-fashioned things, like uh, people used to have shell driveways. Um, if you're putting down a, a deck, you, you don't want to seal up the ground completely underneath the deck. Let the water be able to uh, filter down into the ground. And even where you do have impervious surface, like a driveway, the driveway has a slight lean to it, and you have a little swale next to it. All that water that runs off that driveway can collect in the swale. Now, the swale should be dead-ended. It shouldn't be a ditch. You start ditching things, so water is running off your property. It's taking away your, your, the natural nutrients of the soil, and it's also taking away uh, all the w water and pollutants that don't belong in the lagoon, belong filtering down, being cleaned by uh, uh, passing down through the ground and becoming valuable groundwater. Typically, when we urbanize an area, 
we double the amount of water that's impacting our water bodies, and we half the amount of water that's going down into our groundwater supply. So we starve the valuable groundwater, and we overpollute the surface waters. So swales are a solution, and it's a good place to grow things. Yes, absolutely. And, 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 and think natives. You know, we have a number of really good native plant nurseries. A number of our, our big suppliers now will stock Florida natives. A lot of them can produce really attractive um, butterfly gardens and things that will, uh, you know, actually help our birds and bees and uh, provide uh, an ecological benefit uh, uh, in its own right and not require the, uh, the addition of all that work and all that money and all those pesticides and herbicides and, and nutrients that uh, some of the uh, lawns do. And, and almost all of our lawns are, um, are not native to our area. Almost all the grasses we typically use are uh, non-natives, and they require a tremendous amount of effort to uh, keep them uh, looking good. Yeah, well, people like their lawns, and it's okay as long as it's set back away from the water, and then... Um, you want them probably to use like 50% or more slow-release nitrogen fertilizers? Yes. The, uh, typically, the mistakes that people make here in Florida is they use fertilizers with phosphorus, which is uh, unnecessary for more than 98% of uh, soils here in Florida, and then they'll use a quick-release nitrogen, which will just basically wash off in the next rainstorm and green the lagoon instead of greening their yard. The higher the slow-release, the better. 50% is a good number as a minimum, but you can actually find products with even higher numbers. These, these, are, these are products that will keep feeding your yard even after it's rained. The, the, the fertilizer will remain, and so you'll see a much better bang for your buck, a much greener yard, and a, a less green lagoon as a result of using it. So even though it might cost more to have a higher percentage of slow-release nitrogen, uh, it means less of your time wasted doing a second application, and also um, over the life of the lawn, it, you save money. Oh, no question about it. It's much more cost-effective. In fact, uh, uh, home care uh, specialists never use the products that the homeowner uses that have phosphorus <laughs> in them. In fact, the, uh, very often the biggest complaints that people have, things like dollarweed, they, the, they're often associated with the presence of phosphorus in the fertilizer. So by buying the wrong fertilizer, you're actually feeding the weeds sometimes more efficiently than you're feeding the grass. Yeah, so even though we, you know, we think about the water over there and the land over here, uh, what we do on the land has a real impact on the water. No question about it. They're, they're intrinsically linked. Yeah, and it's too bad that we have to wait to see uh, you know, algal blooms and red tides and um, feel slimy water when we go to the beach. And in order to make the connection between our practices on the land and in the sea. Yes. And, you know, if, if we let it go too far, we've had cases like on the St. Lucie uh, estuary where the water quality got so bad, the tax, toxic algaes uh, multiplied to such a large degree that it became unhealthy just to go out and stand near the water and breathe the salt air. The, the cost to the e economy and to the well-being of the community it's devastating. So the, 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 the fish kills and the small algal blooms, those are the, you know, the, the, the canaries in the coal mine. The, if, if we don't wake up, 
then the, the next knock on the door becomes uh, a serious, serious blow to the economy and to the health of the community. Well, you're talking serious health issues for the residents and the recreators of the resource. Yes. And if we're not careful. Oh, absolutely. And th- this, isn't, this isn't some hypothetical, you know, scare tactic. You know, the, the truth is, is uh, uh, this is science. The, uh, we, we've known for the past 500 years that there were, uh, for instance, red tides that routinely would happen on the Gulf Coast of Florida. This was a known thing. Uh, they've increased in frequency over the years, but it was something that historically was known. Uh, here in, on the East Coast, uh, for 500 years, there was no known outbreaks of red tide until three events have occurred, and all three events has happened in the last 10 years. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that when you have 500 years of data and this event doesn't happen, and then suddenly the event happens three times in 10 years, and uh, there's a connection, you know. We're, the, the pollutants that we're putting into the water is... Uh, a tremendous source of food for uh, algae and bacteria. And if we're lucky, the algae that takes over is non-hazardous. But it's just luck. We roll the dice. The algal bloom that we're currently being affected by is a, is a green algae that doesn't have toxic effects. But if the environmental conditions were slightly different, it could be a red tide event, and we could be uh, suffering once again. Jim, I have to interrupt because we're out of time. Um, uh, we're going to come when we return after the break. Uh, we're going to talk with uh, Martin County Commissioner Patrick Hayes and the legislation that he put through to address over fertilizing of lawns, along with Captain Nancy Beaver. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. green. 
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back talking about the Indian River Lagoon ecosystem, the most biologically diverse estuary in North America. And uh, we have been talking about the science and ecology. And joining me now is Captain Nancy Beaver of Sunshine Wildlife Tours. Captain Nan? Hi, Rob. How are you? Thank you. Good. Thank you and for having me. And then uh, also on the phone is Commissioner Patrick Hayes from Martin County. Rob, how are you doing today? Very good. Thank you for taking time to speak with us on the phone. Uh, Nan, let's start with you um, because you were my introduction uh, on the water to Indian River Lagoon. And um, you pointed out to me what was happening and the situation of too much nutrients coming into the water that uh, Jim Egan and George Jones have described earlier in this program. And uh, it was, you know, and it was so alarming that, uh, well, then we found out, as referred to earlier, that uh, the nutrients from agricultural business, well, ag business was only putting 100% extra nutrients on their properties, whereas lawns were getting at least 500% more than they should. And that's something that lawn owners weren't aware of. I mean, the lawn owners, they love the dolphins and the sea turtles and the wildlife of Indian River Lagoon, and yet they also have a responsibility to take care of their land, and they don't know um, what's the right amount of fertilizer to go to put on. So um, in January, well, before January, uh, the Ocean River Institute put out an, a, a call for help from citizens all over the land, including Canadians, and people wrote in uh, saying, you know, gee, we really like Indian River Lagoon, and uh, we would very much like to see better lawn practices because we understand that too much nutrients flowing into the water is bad news. Uh, so I, we put together at the OceanRiver.org um, a, uh, a letter to the commissioners of Martin County, uh, which is where Sunshine Wildlife uh, has a... Uh, has operations, and, um, gee, I'm just telling you a whole story here for you. Um, <laughs> Captain Nancy. <laughs> um, yes. So Hi, yes. let's take it to, um, you had a nice dinner that Steve McCulloch spoke at. Yes, yes. He's a great friend and, and so active in uh, protecting the dolphin. I think Steve started uh, playing with the dolphin when he was about one and a half or something like that, but uh, he certainly knows them and is uh, doing such a wonderful job, the Wild Dolphin Project, on trying to do what we can for them and making people more aware of what the problems are. And um, I want to I want to commend Ocean River Institute and, and Commissioner Hayes for uh, for taking the initiative and, and and getting this job on the road. Um, I do think the biggest problem we have is that people aren't aware, Rob. And when you make them aware, most of them do want to do a better job. It's just a matter of not knowing. So that's you know we're off to a great start. Um, and we do right. have new new issues coming up because we now have a, a, a photoplankton uh, bloom in the lagoon that started in the northern part of the lagoon, which, of course, is very little movement, no flushing action. And we're now seeing that all the way down to Fort Pierce. And there's uh, 
photoplankton and a couple of uh, dinoflagellants in it, and we know very little about them. We don't even know for sure that they aren't toxic. What we do know is that we're losing massive amounts of, gro- of uh, grass beds daily for the loss of light from this. Mm. So it's a, it's a big new problem and just shows the importance of us getting the rest of the counties and the rest of the communities on board with this. Um, and yeah, so Jim was telling us about the, the grass bed problems right now that are happening there. Yeah. And it was yeah. just remarkable for Steve McCulloch to tell us that January evening how that, you know, the most dolphin deaths were during the end of the summer, and they happened to be in Martin County. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereupon the next day, you and I had the pleasure and honor to meet with Commissioner Patrick Hayes. Yes. So, Commissioner, it must have been kind of odd seeing these ruffians come on into your office. Not at all. You know, I think uh, Nancy mentioned uh, the key word, and that's awareness. Um, I think on a local level, it's where it needs to start, and we need to take every opportunity we can to decrease our urban footprint, um, which through the years has just gotten more aggressively um, difficult to deal with. So, uh uh, small and I and I do consider the uh, our urban fertilizer uh, rule uh, significant, but but still small. It's the awareness that that need that the message has to get out that everybody individually has to take every opportunity that they can to decrease the effects uh, of our uh, living in these watersheds. There's not a person in the face of the earth that does not live and and draw their substance from a watershed and. The degree to which we take care of our watersheds is a degree that our quality of life will um, flourish. Well, we talked about concerns about enforcement of having regulations, and it's clear that, uh, that that's not an issue, that people just want to know what the right thing to do is, and should they choose to do wrong, it's not going to be the end of the estuary, and it's likely they're going to hear from their neighbors about, well, wait a second, you don't, you're not supposed to do it like that. Well, that, that's exactly it. This is, this is not uh, an enforcement issue. This is an awareness issue. And uh, um, I think once the public <clears throat> becomes uh, educated on the issue and realizes that, that pollution starts uh, you know, at their front door and not at somebody else's, uh, that we'll start to have people being more actively addressing it. And it also helps fertilizer salespeople to know and organizations and businesses to know what kinds of fertilizers people are going to be asking for so they can have those at hand. Absolutely. I think the industry is more than willing to support us, uh, and the public will, will bring them in the direction that they need to go. I, I am. Uh, you've met a few obstacles along the way, and I just cannot thank you enough for having the uh, stamina to continue the, the process toward this uh, important legislation. Well, you know, we all stand on somebody else's shoulders, and um, I'm just happy that uh, during our commission we were able to get the ordinance finalized and put it on the book so other people could look at it and uh, move in that same direction. We're out of time, but Commissioner Patrick Hayes, thank you so much for your efforts for the environment and for taking the time to talk with us on the radio. Well, it's my pleasure, and as I said, uh, Rob, you're doing the best thing we can do, which is uh, spread the awareness. And Captain Nancy Beaver, I'm sorry I gave you such short shift to talk today. That's okay. Uh, again, and Jim so Egan, thank you for um, coming in from the uh, Marine Resources Council. Sure. And George Jones, our Indian River 
Lagoon Riverkeeper, thank you so much. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank so you all. For this, that's it for this issue uh, about the Indian River Lagoon. Uh, tune in next time, and thanks for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.